And as we move into a time of worship uh, through our our teaching from Pastor Shane, I'm going to have Caitlin come read the scripture for us. Good morning. This is God's word. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Thank you, Caitlin. Well, good morning, Sound City. It's really good to see all of you today. My name's Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, For any of you who I haven't had the chance to meet just yet, And for those of you who are new, you might not know that we've been going through a little series called Women of the Advent as we run up to uh, Christmas. And in this series, our plan has been to look at our Lord's first advent, his first coming, through the lens of the five women who we find mentioned in the family line of Jesus. More specifically, the five women we find mentioned in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, where the genealogy of Jesus is put on display for us. And what Matthew means to do in this is to give us a little glimpse into the heart of God so that we might take note of his sovereign working in Jesus' family line and so that we might discover uh, a few additional facts, a few additional um, things about God's character, about his plan all along the way. And we've seen this on display over the last few weeks already, haven't we? In week one, we looked at the story of a Gentile Canaanite woman named Tamar, over in Genesis 38, who in God's sovereignty was grafted into the family line of Jesus. Yet the circumstances of all that happened in that story were brought about in a not-so-moral way, weren't they? Through her having relations, uh, we might want to say, with her father-in-law, Judah. So an unlikely person to be maybe grafted into the line of Jesus. In week two, we looked at the story of Rahab the prostitute. And I say it that way because that's how she's described in the scriptures over and over again. And we noted that she also was grafted into the bloodline of Jesus, even despite her immoral profession and her Gentile roots. And last week, uh, in week three, we looked at the story of Bathsheba who was involved in this messy, immoral mix of abusive power and probably sexual abuse as well, all at the hands of King David. And we see that while many would have likely seen her as unclean, she too is honored by God and given a place in the genealogy of our Messiah, Jesus. And that brings us to today into a, a turning of our attention now towards the story of Ruth. And in Ruth's story, we find a story of disobedience to God and the tragedy and suffering that so often accompany such disobedience. We find also their discouragement and loneliness and hopelessness, and yet in Ruth's story we also find people of great godly character, people of great godly lives living out uh, the characteristics of loyalty, of devotion, of compassion, of empathy, and of faith. Really, we find in Ruth's story a tale of redemption, For those of you who know the story, you know that to be true. 
And then finally, with the advantage of a little historical hindsight, we also find in Ruth's story a bit of a foreshadowing of the first advent or the first coming of Jesus, our great Redeemer. But before we get into any of that any further, join me as we pray. Lord God, this day, like all others, is yours. And we remember that now as we thank you for this time together, gathered as your people, to learn from your word and to grow as your disciples. I pray, God, that you would lead me and help me as I teach this morning, and that you would be present with each one of us in the room today, keeping our minds, minds and hearts fixed on you, that we might each be blessed by your truth. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So, let me start with a question. I know it'll be a bit of a stretch uh, for all of you, and I know it's early, but bear with me. Let me ask this. Have you experienced a time in your life or seasons in your life that were deeply discouraging to you? Maybe a, a time or two when you felt some ongoing degree of pain or hopelessness or even dread about life. Maybe a time when you felt a deep sense of loss or loneliness for an extended period of time. If you're a Christian, this might have also been a time when you felt somewhat abandoned by God. Or whether you're a Christian or not, maybe this was a time when you just were tempted to believe that the world was against you somehow. Now, as I read those questions, I read those different categories of that question, do a couple things come to mind for any of you? Yeah. I would bet they do. I know for many of you, this question isn't challenging at all. You know these feelings all too well. And as many of you know, I can certainly relate. Uh, In 2019, early in the year, this year, uh, I entered into probably, uh, well, not probably, it, it was the toughest, most discouraging, most fearful, most hopeless time that I've ever experienced. And I don't use all those adjectives to over-dramatize it. It really was. Um, I had a massive heart attack, as many of you know, on March 20th, followed a couple weeks later by a full heart transplant, and then spent about 60 days in total in the hospital, all said and done. I coded three times in the first couple days of this, meaning that I had to be shocked back to life each time. And in those days in the hospital that followed, I really did experience the worst pain, the worst suffering, the worst weakness, uh, the greatest weakness that I really ever felt. I walked through the loneliness of the nights in the hospital and all the spiritual warfare that came with that for months, which was awful. And in those months in the hospital recovering then, most of that time was spent with this really strange feeling, not one I've experienced before since God found me where I really felt a strange sense of separation from him. It was hard to read uh, the Bible. It was hard to even listen to the Bible. I tried that. It felt almost impossible to pray. And while abandoned seems way too strong of a word, I just really didn't feel God's presence almost at all during that time. And I won't lie to you about it. With all that was going on during those times, there were, There really were times when I despaired of living, as much as I hate to admit that to you guys. But because of all that, because of what uh, myself and what my family went through this year, 
I found as I prepared to teach today that uh, Ruth's story resonates, me, resonates with me now in ways uh, that it didn't before. It's familiar to me now in ways that it wasn't before. And really, it, it stirs hope in me in ways that it couldn't have before. So I want to ask you to think about those questions I was asking. Think about those times in your life when you have experienced seasons of hopelessness or suffering or ongoing pain. And I want you to keep those with you as we go through the story of Ruth today. Because I think in doing so, you, like me, like Naomi and Ruth, as we'll see, might begin to see a picture of the hope and the redemption that is truly available to us and who that hope and redemption is really sourced in. Okay, here we go. Ruth chapter 1, which I've entitled A Season of Grief and Hopelessness. And chapter 1 starts out by giving us some much-needed context for everything else that follows. So let's start at the beginning. Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So here in these first couple verses, we find out a lot of information about kind of the time frame and the general circumstances that we're dealing with throughout the book of Ruth. We learn in verse 1 that this is all taking place in the days when the judges ruled. And what were those days like, Sound City? Anybody remember? So yes, not good. Anyone remember our key verse from back in our study in the book of Judges? Now before you answer, Pastor Jamin is going to give you one night's free lodging in the new church van. If you, all expenses paid if you get the answer right. So what was our key verse? Do you remember? Yes, so that's the text of it. Yeah, anyone have the address? They didn't listen at all, Aaron. <laughs> judges, <laughs> no, you guys are doing great. Uh, it's Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this was a time in the history of God's people, probably sometime in the neighborhood of 1010 B.C. or so, if you're curious, where things really weren't going so hot. And disobedience to God was rampant. And then next we're told a bit about the genealogy of our story, which can be a little confusing uh, at first if you're not familiar with those areas. Uh, We're told about a family of Ephrathites, which is a clan from within God's people, who lived in the city of Bethlehem, that one most of us know, and in the territory of Judah. So that's how those fit together. And we're told of how they went off to Moab, which is over on the southeast side of the Dead Sea, for those who uh, have that picture in your head. Um, and they were going over to Moab because there had been a famine in and around Bethlehem, which is kind of odd uh, or ironic because Bethlehem actually means house of bread. Um, so here we have God's people planning a trip outside of the promised land that God had given them and then brought them into for their own flourishing. Anybody feel like that might not be a great idea for them? It's, worth, it's worthwhile to, to note again that this family's planned destination is Moab, of all places. And that's important for a couple good reasons. Uh, the Moabite people uh, had originated through an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. That's from Genesis 19, if you want to see more on that one. 
which left, as you can imagine, quite a stigma uh, on them. Also, during Israel's time in the wilderness, the Moabites had refused bread and water to God's people uh, in order to sustain them. That's Deuteronomy 23. And, on, and then in the meantime, the Moabites had partnered up with some other folks in the region uh, to curse God's people. And we find that in Numbers 22. And I could go on. But what the scriptures say, what they record in response to all of this, is that Israel was not to make peace with the Moabite people. That's also in Deuteronomy 23. And that the Moabites were not even allowed to attend Israel's worship gatherings, if you can believe that. Also Deuteronomy 23. So the contextual backdrop of our story is this, that Elimelech led his wife Naomi and their two boys to head off to Moab. And when he did this, this was no neutral act in the eyes of God. That's what we need to see. And yet Elimelech not only leads his family there on this little vacation, but then turns this trip into a full-on out-of-state move by remaining there, according to verse 2. And all this, mind you, is set against this backdrop of God's instruction to his people that we find back in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, where God tells them, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will give you Your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last until the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest will last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace to the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. That sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good, except that that's not the way Elimelech and his family had chosen to live, is it? Deuteronomy 28, we read this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then in the verses that follows, it gets into some of the details of all that if you want to look further. And then one more in Leviticus, we find similar consequences listed and then followed up with warnings like this one from uh, Leviticus 26, verse 23 and 24, where God says, And if, this dis- if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. Doesn't sound as good, right? Not the cheeriest or most encouraging reading. And it can sound kind of harsh to hear that from the mouth of God, Uh, especially, I think, to our 21st century ears. But when we look at it all against the backdrop of Scripture as a whole, what it reveals is a a truly loving God who knows what's best for us and who's willing to let us touch the proverbial hot stove and experience the pain that comes with that, if we must, if it will cause us to turn from our disobedience, if it will cause us to repent and follow him. Okay. Okay. We've got a lot to go still, so let's keep going. Ruth 1, uh, verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So, Here, perhaps, we're beginning to see some of the consequences of their disobedience to God in going to and remaining in Moab. Elimelech dies, 
This does not stir Naomi to go back to her homeland quite yet. Uh, She remains in Moab with her two sons for at least 10 more years, according to uh, this part of the chapter. And then the sons intermarry with Moabite women, Ruth being one of them, whose wombs apparently remain closed throughout their marriages, which we need to also interpret a little bit. And we'll interpret that through the lens of Deuteronomy 7, where God forbids intermarrying with pagan peoples. God saying through Moses, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then we're told that Naomi's sons die as well. And we find Naomi left with no husband, no sons, no grandchildren to become heirs, and only two widowed daughters-in-law. In Ruth, six, uh, Ruth 2, 6, rather, in following then, we find Naomi hearing that the famine has lifted in the land of her people. And so she gathers up uh, her two daughters-in-law and begins the trek out of Moab and back towards Bethlehem and Judah. And what we see, if we were to read through the whole thing, we see that there is this affection uh, for both of these women that Naomi has, even despite their heritage. And so early on into their trek uh, out of Moab, um, we see Naomi uh, encourage them three times, encourage Orpah and Ruth, that is, back towards their homelands. She's believing here that they would have a far better hope of marrying again amongst their own people rather than amongst the people of God. And while eventually Orpah relents and through tears kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, Ruth will not. Verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So we find Ruth making this really beautiful pledge of loyalty to Naomi here. A heartfelt pledge of faith to Naomi's people and God as well. And then an oath to God to seal her pledges. And for the other fellow nerds out in Uh, the room this morning, that oath that she takes is called a self-maledictory oath, if you want to look that up later. Um, So next, uh, with Ruth's loyalty now and uh, her new faith as well established, Naomi and Ruth continue in their travels on towards Bethlehem. And as they reach the city, the townspeople stir and people said to one another, could this really be Naomi? And that makes sense. It had been more than 10 years since they would have seen her. She was now alone with no sons, no husband, and I guess she wasn't really alone. She had this Moabite at her side of all things. No wonder they wondered if it was really her. But how would Naomi respond to their question of it? Is it really Naomi? Let's pick up in verse 20. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So what's going on here is that Naomi's name actually means lovely or um, pleasant one. And so when she hears that, it stirs up all these feelings of uh, heartbreak and of bitterness that continue to haunt her. And she tells them, in essence, don't call me lovely. Call me bitter, which is what Mara means. 
Then she goes on to grieve really openly to her people, doesn't she? She's speaking of how God is testifying against her and bringing calamity upon her. Speaking of how she went away from Jerusalem full and now she has returned from Moab empty. And she's placing that on God. Can you imagine, though, the weight, the sense of loss and desperation, the sense of abandonment from God that Naomi must have been feeling in this moment? How hopeless. Any of you ever felt something like that? But the good news is that it seems uh, that God is not done with Naomi and Ruth just yet. And that he is not so far from her, despite how Naomi uh, feels. This brings us to chapter 2, which I've entitled Hope Rising, where we find Naomi and Ruth are now getting settled back in Bethlehem. And we're told that this is all happening during the very beginning of the barley harvest, which is good. And loyal Ruth, uh, desiring to be a help and an encouragement to her mother-in-law, requests permission from her to go and glean in the field so that she might at least have some food to provide for them to eat. Uh, Most of you probably know what gleaning is that process, it's that practice established amongst God's people that allowed for the poor and the widows and sojourners to gather standing grain that was in the corners and around the borders of the harvest fields. So Ruth goes about to glean, and she runs into this godly man named Boaz, or runs into his field anyway, who happens to be a relative of Naomi's husband. Verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, which is Naomi's deceased husband. And Boaz sees Ruth gleaning in his fields, and he inquires about her, and one of his servants tells him that Ruth is that Moabite woman that came back with Naomi. And Boaz had heard of Ruth, actually, and he had heard the stories of her loyalty and love for Naomi. He'd heard the stories of her bold commitment to Naomi's God and to uh, his people as well. And his reaction to her then reveals this really sweet, heartfelt desire to protect and to provide for both of them. For her protection, uh, he tells her, um, Boaz that is, tells her to stay in his fields with his servants rather than wandering into others where she might not be so safe. He tells his other servants to look after her. He gives her permission to, uh, to drink water where his reapers drink. He just keeps heaping kindness upon kindness on her until she is overwhelmed and has a bit of a break. Picking up here in Ruth 2.10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and of how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's beautiful. So when the day of gleaning is done, then she takes the barley that she had gathered and heads back home. And we're told that in total, this was like 30 to 50 pounds of barley. And so so Naomi sees her coming and uh, is overwhelmed by God's favor upon her gleaning that day. And is just overwhelmed at uh, the provision that he seems to be providing. And when Naomi asks where she had gleaned, she tells her that it's amongst Boaz's field that she had worked. Ruth 2.20 now. 
And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so here, uh, for the first time maybe, we hear something from Naomi other than doom and gloom. Though that doom and gloom was understandable. And we also find in verse 20 that Naomi is realizing that Boaz is a near relative of theirs and probably a family redeemer as well. And I imagine Naomi might for the first time here be starting to realize that God had not brought her back empty after all. And this redeemer idea that Naomi has mentioned has to do with leveret marriage statutes. Um, I think we've talked about that. Didn't we one week talk about this already in the series? Um, And the gist of it, again, is this, that in the event that a man's brother dies, leaving a widow and no male heir, then a kinsman redeemer would be one who felt obliged to protect the interests of his family. And he'd do this by marrying his brother's wife and producing an heir, and also, uh, as appropriate, by buying all the brother's property that was at risk of being sold outside of the family. But Boaz is not Elimelech's brother. And Boaz is not uh, Ruth's husband either, right? Or brother either. So Boaz really in no real legal way is obligated to redeem um, these women. But because he's an extended family relative, he could do so if he desired to. So chapter 2 ends by telling us then that Ruth continued to live with Naomi and glean day to day in the fields of Boaz under his care until the end of the harvest season, which was probably about seven weeks in total or so, which leads us now into chapter 3, which I've called Humbly Pursuing Redemption. And here we find our uh, far happier Naomi, thankful for the, fruitless, fruitless, for the fruitfulness of Ruth's gleaning, and thankful for this family redeemer who has provided for them through Ruth's work in the field. So grateful Naomi then speaks to Ruth about her wish to see Ruth find a truer rest and wellness in her life. Which in this context probably means she's wanting her to get remarried. She's wanting her to be able to have children of her own. And right about now, I imagine she's thinking about how over the top Boaz's response has been so far. And maybe she's wondering if Boaz might just have a more than a friend interest in her daughter-in-law. And that's what she's hoping. So with all that in mind, Naomi comes up with this plan to test her theory. Now, Naomi knew that uh, Boaz was on the schedule that evening for use of the threshing floor. Apparently they took turns, all the people in the community. Um, and the threshing floor is that place where uh, you would go after the harvest to process all that had been harvested in your fields and prepare it for use. And Naomi's faith, it seems, has really returned in full at this point. She trusts Boaz implicitly as well. And so she encourages Ruth to clean herself up and to go to Boaz that evening at the end of this long but festive day on the threshing floor. And basically, Naomi tells Ruth to propose to him and ask him to be her kinsman redeemer, picking up in verse 6. So she went, <clears throat> so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drank and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So the people that were 
at the threshing floor doing their work would lay by their grain so things couldn't get stolen. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all for you that you have asked. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, then good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So, as you can imagine, as many of you probably know, much has been said, much ink has been spilled about what this uncovering of the feet of Boaz actually means. Yes, I hear those giggles. Uh, And while scholarly opinions vary, certainly some scholars uh, see fit to accuse Naomi and Ruth here of developing this plan, this evil plot, manipulating Boaz into being her kinsman redeemer by first orchestrating some immoral encounter. But I would agree with the other scholars, the ones who are right, by the way, (laughs) that see a far greater likelihood that Ruth, who was called worthy, noble in chapter 3, verse 11, and Boaz, who was called a worthy or noble man in chapter 2, verse 1, that they're acting just as we've known them to so far, with almost an impeccable sense of morality, with sacrificial kindness, and in clear contrast to the morality of the day, which was to do what was right in their own eyes. I really like what one scholar said about this. He said, The action of Ruth, far from clouding her womanly delicacy, was a new evidence of the nobility, purity, and genuine love that ruled her which is unequivocally testified to by the answer of Boaz. So chapter 3 ends then with a humbly excited and encouraged Boaz acting just as we'd expect a worthy man like him to respond, telling Ruth that it would be his joy to do everything that she has asked of him, but only after first confirming whether this near redeemer in the family would choose to redeem her or not. And while neither Ruth nor Boaz wishes this to be the case, it's the right thing to do under God, and so it's the thing that Boaz does. And that brings us to chapter 4, the final chapter of Ruth, which I've entitled, A Family Redeemed and Blessed. So in verses 1 through 6, Boaz goes about the task of finding this near kinsman and then inviting 10 elders of the city to come along with him to be witnesses to all that would take place. And upon finding him, Boaz explains the situation to him And initially, this sounds pretty good to the near kinsman, and so he agrees. Probably thinking of the land that he'll get and all this advantage that it will be to him. But when Boaz explains that the deal would also include enacting the Leveret marriage pledge to marry Ruth and so that an heir would be produced that could then inherit that land and perpetuate Elimelech's family name, well, the near redeemer changes his tune a bit then. Saying in verse 6, Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
So in other words, this near redeemer wouldn't have gotten to keep the land. Rather, it would have gone to Ruth's offspring and therefore wouldn't have advanced his own personal legacy or that of his other children. And while the same would have been true for Boaz, now that he knows that the near redeemer has declined, he quickly and sacrificially accepts. Verse 9 now. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. So Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord... Make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So these elders that he brought along with him to be witnesses are clearly affirming this act of kindness by Boaz, and they pray that God would give three distinct blessings to he and Ruth. They pray for the family's fruitfulness through children who would build up the people of God, just like Rachel and Leah's lines did in their marriages to Jacob. Their second prayer blessing was that Boaz's name would be remembered in Bethlehem because of his sacrificial act of redeeming this family. And the third prayer of blessing that they offered to Ruth and Boaz was that their family line would be as strong as that of Perez, who was born to Tamar and Judah. Then in the remainder of the chapter, we see uh, their marriage confirmed. They get married, and they tell us of God's quick answers then to the elders' prayers for fruitfulness as the birth of uh, Ruth's son Obed is shared with us. And then in the final verses of the book of Ruth, we're connected back to the genealogy that frames out our whole Women of the Advent series, actually, which Matthew records and then builds on back in Matthew chapter 1. So, that's our story, or at least that's a quick but hopefully still helpful telling of the story of the book of Ruth. And while we've already drawn out a few important points and applications along the way, let's see what else we can observe now that we can see the whole thing, all four chapters in view. And I've got three big ideas for you. Big idea number one, God calls us to obedience and disciplines our disobedience, and both are for our good. Now this may seem really obvious, But if it's so obvious to us, then why is it that we, like Naomi's family, so systematically struggle against the wisdom that it provides? I think it's really important for us to look at this point, actually. So even while the application for a topic like this seems pretty self-evident, like obey more, disobey God less, (laughs) even though that's really simplistic, We could spend several Sundays, I promise you, looking only at what the Bible has to say about this topic and never run out of things to say. It's everywhere in the Bible. Have you noticed that? But for today, with our limited time, we're going to have to settle instead for just a quick refresher as we still have other fish to fry before we're done, as the saying goes. And what we can say about this topic for sure from our study today is that Naomi's family definitely experienced struggle quite a bit, right? 
they experience disobedience and the consequences that come from it. In the early part of Ruth, we find Naomi and her family leaving the country of blessing that God had called them to inhabit. They go into Moab and stay there. They live with an idolatrous people, not friendly to the people of God. And then Naomi's sons intermarry with Moabite women, also a big no-no in God's eyes. And what we can say for sure also is that even for those of us who are in here today, by God's grace, redeemed and saved through faith in Jesus, if we're honest, even the best of us seem to struggle with our own rhythms of obedience and disobedience, don't we? God calls us to obedience and disciplines our disobedience and both are for our good. I know how elementary this sounds on the surface, but it just isn't. Let's test it. Quick, without thinking, what's the one thing, what's the two, five things that God's been asking you to do for maybe a while now and you're just not doing it? You don't have to raise your hands, but anything come to mind for anybody? Friends, Jesus himself tells us that we will be blessed, that we will be blessed if we are counted among those who not only hear his word, but keep it. Luke 28 tells us, Jesus in Luke 28 tells us, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The psalmist too tells us, In Psalm 128, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Friends, there's so much that we're missing in life through our lack of obedience that he's called us to. Do you know that? And there's not one good thing that we could ever gain through our disobedience. Do you know that? Can you receive that this morning? God calls us to obedience and disciplines our disobedience and both are for our good. Okay, big idea number two. God is near to his people even when he seems far off. In chapter one of Ruth and in a little bit of two as well, we find Naomi, this faithful-ish believer in God, wrecked. Right with grief and loss and despair and hopelessness and with this sense of abandonment from her God. And it's hard to imagine what kind of pain she must have been going through over the course of that decade or so. Losing her husband, losing her two sons, waiting for 10 years with no heirs born of those marriages. And then what she's left with is these two barren Moabite wives. And it's at this point where we get back to that question that I asked you to consider at the beginning of our time. When I asked, what are those times or seasons in your life where you've experienced great loss or hopelessness, pain or loneliness, abandonment or fear or despair? I know that many of you have experienced and are experiencing times like these. And I have had and continue to have some of those same feelings. But the good news for me, the good news for all of us, Sound City, is that God is truly with us. Amen? Do you really believe that, though? Do we really believe that? Well, here's what we know, a little bit of what we know. In Galatians 3, we're told that those of us who have faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and our salvation 
that we are counted among Abraham's offspring and counted amongst the heirs of God's promises made to him and to God's people. And what that means for us today is that we can take hold of promises like the one made by God through his servant Isaiah in Isaiah 41, where God tells us, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's an amazing truth, isn't it? And one that we long to hear sometimes, I know. We could also take comfort that God is truly with us from passages like Acts 17, 27, where we're given assurance that God is not far from any of us. And honestly, as I got into this, I started thinking, like, how could he be far from us? How could he be far from us when he is the God in whose hands is our very breath? How could he be far from us when he has given us his Holy Spirit, who is God himself, to dwell inside of us forever? And how could he be far from us when we're promised that no one can snatch us out of his hand? No one can snatch us out of his hand. Sound City, for those of us whom God has saved by grace through faith in Jesus, God is near to us. God is with us, even when he seems far off. Okay, big idea number three. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Many of you saw this one coming. And this has been all well and good so far, everything we've talked about. And I hope you've encouraged getting to know, maybe at a better level of detail, a deeper level, uh, the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz as much as I have. But what's it got to do with Advent, right? Isn't this an Advent series after all? Um, Well, I'm sure many of you have pieced it together along the way. Let me add a few additional thoughts as well as we get ready to wrap things up. It's been well said, I think I've said this before, that uh, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Does that make sense? And the story of Ruth, like many others in the Old Testament, gives us a glimpse of that, gives us a glimpse of what God has in store for his people through Jesus, if we have the eyes to see it. But where do we see this in Ruth? Well, in Ruth, we see Boaz become the worthy and noble hero of the story, right? He's the redeemer. And to be their kinsman redeemer, Boaz first had to be a blood relative. And isn't that quite similar to how Jesus became our blood relative through his incarnation at his first advent that we're about to celebrate? Boaz needed the means and ability to redeem what was dead and lost, and Jesus, who lived his human life fully without sin, had the only means and ability, the only means and ability to redeem us. Boaz needed to be sacrificial and willing to pay the extensive cost that came with being a redeemer, and Jesus willingly and sacrificially laid down his life to redeem sinners like you and me. Boaz needed to be willing to marry the wife of the deceased kinsman, and by grace and through faith, we have become the bride of Jesus, his church. Boaz redeems both Naomi, an Israelite, and Ruth, a Gentile, and brings peace and security and rest to them both. And through Jesus, all Gentiles who come to him by faith are grafted in to his family tree, making us one people of God's possession who live under the protection and confident hope of the redemption we have in him. Isn't that good? Sound City, Ruth's story 
The story of a young Gentile woman from an idol-worshiping people turned out to be part of a bigger story with greater blessing than Ruth could have ever imagined. And for those of us who have been forgiven, saved, and justified through Jesus, our Redeemer, we too have become part of a bigger story than we could have ever imagined. The biggest redemption story in history. Amen? San City, Jesus is our kinsman Redeemer. And that's some really stinking good news. (laughs) Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the reminder in Ruth that you are a God who has called us to obedience so that we would be blessed by it and that we might be found full of hope in you. God, we thank you also for reminding us that you are indeed with us and for the comfort and security that brings us, even when it isn't always accompanied with the relief we often want exactly when we want it. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the new and better Boaz who saves us from the penalty of our sins and calls us to yourself for all eternity as our Redeemer. And Father God, we pray all of these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Pastor Kyle. Oh, Pastor Jamin. Thanks, Pastor Shane. Uh, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians, um, then, then I'll pray and then you should have received elements when you, when you came in, and you can individually pray and partake in communion, and then after that, stand and worship with us. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Pray with me. Father, we're so thankful. We're so thankful, especially this time of year when we get to reflect on Jesus, that you sent Jesus, Father. What he accomplished for us, Father, we didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it every day, but yet it's, it's our gift that Heavenly Father gave to us, Father. We're so thankful for that, Father. And as we're reflecting back on some of the things Pastor Shane went over, Father, when, um, when God calls us to obedience, Father, forgive us when we don't obey, Father. Forgive us. And we're thankful that you, you use it for good no matter what, Father, because you love us, Father. So thankful that you are our kinsman, redeemer, Father. As we sit here and reflect, Father, I want each and every one of us to feel both the weight of our sin and then also, Father, that we get to celebrate in your grace and that that you have forgiven each and every one of us, Father, and that is amazing. And we we are so thankful for that, Father, in your precious holy name. Amen.